You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Thank you for returning for this final episode with Jeffrey Golia, the former clinical director at New York Center for Living. Today, our discussion is about keeping hope alive and the most common substances and issues that are facing young people today in our society. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. I think the other thing that you inspire when you talk about this is that though we might meet you in one of the most challenging and scary times, you offer a language that's empowering and hopeful. Like when you look at every crisis, there's an opportunity. You know, I don't think that's the first thought of the families when they first come in the rooms. They're thinking, oh my gosh, our world's coming to an end. This is going to be awful. It's never going to get better. Meeting people like I do along the path where, say, this has started at 13 and they're now 30, they're pretty beat up by the journey and the repeated patterns and the getting the hope and then the, oh no, and then the scary and almost losing them and all, they're alive. Okay, there's chance, you know, that whole roller coaster. How would you speak to someone who's at that point? Because I know a lot of my listeners are. They're young people if their parents are adults and have been doing this ride and journey with addiction and substance use disorders and mental health issues for a long time. As I breathe, I hope. It's a Mm. thing I say to myself all the time. As I breathe, I hope, right? That's the thing that keeps us, us going. Whether we're in this work or whether we do something different, right? We want to have a level of hope and optimism moving forward. And for the parent who has been doing this for a long time, that is depleted. Mm-hmm. And yet, it reemerges when they start doing their own work. And this sounds a little counterintuitive, but if they stop tying that to their kid's recovery at this moment <laughs> and start tying it to their own recovery and the work that they're doing, and they're not saying, I don't love my kid anymore. They're just saying, if they start to focus on what they can control what they can manage, then they can start to build a capacity for hope and optimism. Because the other piece around that is that while they are, especially for younger kids, it's weird. I'm going to kind of hold to a dialectic here, two opposing views. On the one hand, parents have a tremendous capacity and responsibility mm-hmm. towards their kids, especially their younger kids. As they get older, though, I think they still have a capacity to shape, motivate. Right. But at the same time, young people have to want it. Right. They have to find that way to 59th Street, whatever avenue they use, they have to find that way, whether they're enhancing motivation, whether they surrender, whatever, they do need to engage in their own recovery. But the parent can then acknowledge, right, that like all I can do is what I can control. And there's a correlation, if not a causation, between a parent engaged in their own recovery, in their own work, in their own treatment, in their own exploration of their own lives and what they've been through, and that capacity to hope, right? You know, the practice of psychotherapy for me is the practice of a lot of things, but that includes instilling a level of hope, right? And in this journey, the recovery journey, 
that's a piece. And I guess also if we take the destination away from it, yeah, right, that's that other piece, right? Success, failure, the destination of this. No, I mean, the idea is that we're living and we're doing the best we can. Today. Yeah, and Donald Winnicott said, you know, as parents, we just have to be good enough. And I think that that's another important piece here, right? The perfect is the enemy of the good. I'm just giving everyone the hashtag. Good. It's new. Yeah. But you know what I love is when I talk to families, what they walk away with and they tell me, not from necessarily my work, but any work with professionals, is it's those little nuggets that help reinforce the hope and give them the thought. And in the dark moment, they can remember that and feel, okay, oh, I can do this for another few minutes. I can do this for another day. And that's some right. days, that's just what it takes. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the roots, right? I think like, you know, one thing is that, you know, for me is that whenever I say something like just for today to a young person, oh, this is just the stuff that that you hear in AA. I said, well, it's true. And people repeat it because it's true and it's effective. And these are memes, right? If we want to use the, you know, some of the language of our time, right? These are mind viruses in a good way, right? They're things that get into us and they help us conceptualize recovery and help us, you know, conceptualize all this. But the other piece of the installation of hope is the hope that we get from engaging with other people who are dealing with the same thing we are. So going to AA, going to NA, going to MA, going to CODA, going to whatever. At the same time, going to Al-Anon, right? Yes. Um, engaging with folks who are uh, loving people who are struggling with active addiction or are in recovery. All of these things are vital. One of the sort of presumptions or presuppositions of group therapy is that that installation and development of hope among those folks because they feel less alone because they're engaging with people who are dealing with similar things. What is it? Connection is the opposite of addiction or the yes, counter? Or, yes, yes, yes. The opposite of addiction is connection. And it's true. From a family perspective, what I always say alone in my head, my term is monkey chatter. The monkey chatter as a family member that leads me into fixed managed control will just eat me up and drive me there. As a person in recovery with addiction, if I stay quiet and alone, my disease will outsmart me, outmaneuver me and convince me that's the right thing to do. So if I'm willing to get in the rooms on either side of this coin with people, whatever room that is, I'm 12-step that's my recovery, but that doesn't mean the others don't work. There's great options out there. Mm-hmm. Getting around people who are finding traction and ways forward in their life that seem to be hard to even come by for a person. It's like a mirror being shown to you, right? When you can't see it in yourself, but you see it in the person across the room. I can try that. I can try that. And listen, one of the challenges with the young folks is around, I think, having them step into humility. And it's not because I think that they're arrogant at all, but it's because I think that a natural defense of some of the powerlessness of being an adolescent, where you sort of have an adult body and a child's mind and you live in a a world where you don't have like all the freedoms and yet you have building responsibilities, you know, there's a sense in which overconfidence is a natural state there, but also I think a defensive state in a lot of ways. And I think that it is counterintuitive for a young person to be humble to say, I don't know, to be open to the feedback of others. But I also think that there's a tremendous capacity to do that when they're around both young people and peers and also, I think, supportive adults who can model that and who can tell them that like you still have a lot of value and a lot of power, even if you say, I don't know. And in fact, as we get older, I think, you know, we, 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 uh, at least some of us, right, we value saying, I don't know. I love saying, I don't know to my daughter. And she does ask very challenging why questions, which I don't know the answers to. But I think for the young people too, in group, and I'm I'm in those groups from time to time facilitating is, you know, how can you build capacity to be open 
to the suggestions of other people and actually then go out and, and maybe try that thing that might help you and support your recovery. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Hi, this is Margaret Swift Thompson of the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Please like us and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. A word that's come up that I think is another way to help with hope, but also to understand the nature of the challenge with which we find ourselves if we're in one of these situations is counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Like our brain, our heart, our body is screaming to do something, and yet we're taught a skill set that is the opposite of that scream. And leaning into that uncomfortability of making that choice or that decision is tough, I don't think, for just adolescents. I think it's tough for the parents. I think it's tough for all human beings. And so just having grace, that's another word I use a lot, having grace with ourselves and with each other is just a human gift we give each other. Because I think the parallels in this journey, and I would assume, Jeffrey, you feel the same on the family side and the person who's identified as a patient are uncannily similar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The good news in that is both can do their work and show the recovery process and help each other without actually telling each other what to do or trying to do it for each other. Yeah, well, it happens in so much in the actions and behaviors, right? I mean, like to say that, you know, actions speak louder than words, mm -hmm. which is definitely a key of role modeling there. But um, the other things you know by its fruits, right? You know, one thing that you notice with young people when they are actually embracing recovery is that other aspects of their life get better. It's not always the case, right? Sometimes if the substance use was medicating a serious mental illness, then right. you might start to see that flare up, right? But with comprehensive and multidisciplinary treatment, right, you can start to see that. But generally speaking, right, once those issues are being managed and addressed, you know, one way that we know is, oh, look, they, they're doing better in school and oh, right. they got a job and like oh, they're going to college. And so, you, you know, you start to know it by those things. And, that, and then there's a really nice sort of feedback loop between those two kind of separate systems of recovery, as you characterized it. What are you say in the last year, two years, you've seen as the most current changes within the population you serve? Are there any that stand out? Because I mean, we're coming out of the pandemic, we're seeing the increase in the fentanyl. I mean, there's some really political, um, not that we're going down that, but just the divide and the animosity towards human beings and the disrespect. You know, there's yeah. a lot there. So what are you noticing in your population that's changed positively or challengingly? The process addictions is a phrase that we kind of use things like social media mm -hmm. and phones more generally. You know, I certainly struggle with my phones in large part because I have to use them for work, but they also happen to be a place where I connect with others. And so even I have to think a little about that. But, right. but to get back to your question, so one, phone use and the impact in social media use that's ha um, had on our kids, you know, the Surgeon General put out, I think, a really, really scary and relevant report on the impact that social media has on young people. So I think that that is certainly an issue that we see, and it co-occurs, as it were. Right. Certainly, the pandemic created a, 
disconnection that was really challenging. You know, it's funny when the pandemic started and I was actually doing a different kind of work. I was working mostly with young men coming out of jail and prison at the time. You know, this idea of social distancing. And I remember talking to, to some people and saying, well, we want to physically distance, but we want to socially connect. Right. Because while we want to stay safe from this new and scary pandemic, we at the same time don't want to lose sight. And I think what happened was we did socially distance, not just physically, but that isolation and that isolation was really challenging for young people. And so we're seeing the outcomes of that, which I think we're still seeking to understand from mm-hmm. a public health and mental health perspective. But yeah, I mean, the social media use, the isolation, the increased rates of depression and anxiety. I absolutely think that the political and social divide in this country is something that is relevant and salient in these issues. And at the same time, we know that substance use cuts across everything. We know that substance use, it doesn't matter your socioeconomics, it doesn't matter whether you're a Trump voter, whether you're a Biden voter, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or somewhere in between, it doesn't care whether you're race, there are maybe differences in terms of who has access in different geographical areas, but all things being equal, substance use is the great equalizer in these situations. And I would say that's also true when you go to an AA meeting, right? Yes. You sit around people and, and yes, sometimes there's different demographics as it were, but generally speaking, you go to certain meetings and you see people of all walks of life. But yeah, this is the constellation of factors that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mentioned it before, I'll mention again, fentanyl is really scary and the way that it kind of gets into everything, powders and pills and whatnot. And I think that we want to do a lot of education around fentanyl We give out Narcan a lot, which we think is great. Our psychiatrists can provide medications for addiction treatment, including naltrexone, Vivitrol, buprenorphine, Supplicate, and um, Suboxone. I always want to maintain my scope. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can talk about what we do. But the fact is, is that all of those things to address this. And then, of course, yes, our program and other programs have seek to be robust in the way that we address mental health issues as co-occurring with substance use disorders. And so utilizing effective evidence-based treatments. But then finally, you know, what I'll say is connection, (laughs) getting back to that. So one thing we seek to do and other programs do as well is sober outings and activities. Young people don't think they can have fun without substances in large part because maybe they've never tried. Right. Although I don't think that they were fun. I mean, if you come to us, it's because they weren't fun anymore. And in fact, they were leading to some serious challenges in your life. But we say, how can you go out to eat with your friends and not drink? and enjoy a meal. You know, we're in New York City, so our kids are foodies. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so we might do that. But also like, yes, how do you go and spend time with other people sober and be able to connect with them? And I think what they find is actually that it's much more enjoyable and they don't have a hangover, but they also don't have the shame over the, yeah. what did I say? I love that word too. That's a new one. Shame over. That's good. Yeah. That comes from people with anxiety, right? You go to a party and you talk to a lot of people and you say, oh, did I say the wrong thing? Did I say something? And you sort of rack your brain for that. But you know, our kids, they can have both. They can wake up and say, what did I do? What did I say? Was that, did I say something? Anyway, it's just a way that they can disabuse themselves of some of the anxiety from not just use, but also the not adaptive socialization that occurs with use. And I think it's important to say for the families that one of the baffling parts witnessing this decline with substance use disorder is it isn't looking fun. It isn't looking enjoyable. It is causing pain, and yet you still use. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the lack of awareness of it's a pathological relationship with a substance or behavior that supersedes every other human need we have. And so when you look at it from that lens, it's telling them it's really good still, even though they know on some level it's not really good. And or it's the only way I'll feel okay. 
Like to think how desperate one must feel to think this is the only way I can feel okay, not even good, but okay. And so again, it comes back to that love and compassion, right? For self, for them, that the disease is beating them up regularly. Yeah, it's more powerful than them. And that tenet, I think, is one helpful way to conceptualize and sort of move into a space of recovery is to recognize that, you know, you're not going to white knuckle this. You're not going to beat it like that. No. I am so glad we did this. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you have a desire to touch on? One thing when you asked about emerging issues, yeah, I did think about was a big issue we deal with in New York City is cannabis. Yeah. It's everywhere. And I'll just disclose, you know, in my previous work in the criminal legal system, what we used to call the criminal justice system, what they now call the criminal legal system, we were definitely in support of decriminalizing it to the extent that because a lot of young men, particularly young men of color, right, were incarcerated and lost their futures or had their futures endangered by mostly selling it. And I think that we're in a space now where the pendulum has moved to this place where it is legitimately difficult for our young people to walk down the street when they struggle with cannabis use disorder. They have a very hard time. It is difficult for this mother to visit her daughter in New York City and smell skunk every time I turn a corner, right? That's my term. But I hear you. And as I have compassion for the young people who may want to not smoke, and it's everywhere. And that is not just New York now. It's growing everywhere. Yeah, we're just, it's really tight in Manhattan and Midtown. And so I think that, you know, as a society, I think that in, not just in New York City, but everywhere, right? Substances uh, permeate everything we do, right? Beer commercials everywhere, bars in every corner, right? Those sorts of things. And listen, yeah. that's, we live in a free society and that's what happens. My hope is that there's a correction that's sort of back to the middle where maybe people are more mindful of their use of substances. And not because we always have to walk around thinking that people might have use disorders around us, but rather because... I just think like, I also think about like my daughter's school and other things. And so, you know, again, I don't know if this is going to get to the pod, so to speak, but I do think that like, as a society, I think finding balance between freedom and responsibility is a large social conversation. And it's cast in sharp relief when, yes, our program is working with young people who are seeking to be sober and in recovery, even from cannabis, and yet they're faced with it a lot. And um, it is, it's, it's a real challenge right now. Well, and the thing that's interesting is I can hear the alcoholics saying, well, I've been doing that now for decades. So cry me a river. Those of you have to deal with marijuana in your face. Now, that's very flippant, and I don't mean that that way. But the other piece of it is walking in a public area and smelling it is very different than somebody having it in a glass. And we can't control that for ourselves. Like I can't avoid it if I'm in that area where it is. I can maybe try to go to areas where I won't smell it, but I'm quite amazed at the commonality of it and where it is and where it isn't. So what I would say on that, though, I I hear you and agree with you. And I think we have a lot coming our way that we're going to have to navigate when it comes to cannabis. What do you feel around alcohol? What do you see with your young people? Because that one seems to still be a silent killer. We know that. I see that. But it isn't talked about because, of course, we are talking about fentanyl, which is a very real issue. What do you see around patterns with alcohol? I was talking with my family therapist about this because we were talking about the idea that cannabis has this kind of, you take a kid that smoke a lot of cannabis, right? He falls asleep playing video games, right? Or something like that, right? But the long-term, obviously, effect of the cannabis, there's there's an association with psychosis, right? An association with, with this new cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome right. and what they're getting, right? So it's not benign at all, right? But the kind of 
acute use of alcohol, like it could be very dangerous, you know, in one moment, right? Or one period of time, right? Alcohol poisoning, aspiration for the lungs, you know, vomiting, those sorts of things. And so there's sort of that acute danger of alcohol and then a long-term, and we were sort of like, have to engage in psychoeducation to say like, we really want to discourage young people from using cannabis at an early age due to the effect it would have on their brains. We also want to be really critical of alcohol use and not just because of the developmental issues that could exist there, but also because there can be an acute danger of alcohol poisoning and, and what can happen. And so we always want to be extremely mindful of that. So listen, we see young people for whom that is in the old parlance, their drug of choice or can be associated or a trigger for another drug of choice. And really the view of our center, right, is abstinence from all substances is the best way moving forward for our young people. And again, it's, will they never safely use in the future? It's not really for us to say. What we're saying is that there's a strong reason, both in terms of their presenting issues and behaviors, but also in terms of their development that says, you're 13 to 30, probably best for you to avoid that. Right. Take us back. For the person out there who's hearing about cannabis and psychosis, they're like, what? Because some people have not heard of this. Would you give them a little information about what you're seeing, what that looks like for families out there? Certainly. And I'll cite my medical director, Dr. Eric Collins, who just did a presentation for our parents a couple of weeks ago on this. But research is showing pretty significantly that especially for adolescent boys, Mm -hmm. utilization of cannabis is strongly, strongly associated with the development of psychosis. And psychosis that can look like what's called substance-induced psychosis, but also sort of exacerbating the onset of schizophrenia or psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. And so there's just strong evidence. And I think one of the associations is that the higher potency cannabis and the overuse of that with carts and oils and other things like that is a strong contributor to that association. And so it's really key because I think, yeah, I think a lot of people grew up using cannabis and I'll sort of date myself, right? You know, my parents growing up in the late sixties and into the seventies, right? And whether the weed was different then or now, I mean, I guess that's what people say, I don't know, but I don't want to have that argument as much as to say that we do see this very, very high potency cannabis now and those associations are increasing. And so I think that that's one thing we talk about. And then the other thing is the CHS, this cannabis or cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Hyperemesis syndrome has to do with vomiting. And that is something that I have seen both in the residential and in an outpatient space, which is folks presenting with that syndrome that's extremely uncomfortable. And there's an association with the high potency cannabis. I'm sorry, you missed me. So that's them vomiting that it induces vomiting. It induces like consistent vomiting and other just pretty extreme body discomfort. And it takes a while to get out of it. And then it really comes from very consistent use of high potency cannabis. And so they would present if they can't stop vomiting at an ER with flu-like symptoms where you can't keep anything down. If they're not asking about cannabis, would they know that's what's going on? That's a good question. I haven't spoken to people in emergency departments and and I would actually follow up with my medical director about to, to sort of talk about that. But when we see it, the one thing that we do get worried about, of course, is any kind of, you know, medical issue. Dehydration, just the pain of the vomiting or any other discomfort. It does need to be addressed on a medical level. Right. And then ultimately addressed on a clinical level. I learned something new. Look at that. I find that every podcast, there's something I learned that I may have heard a bit about, but don't know about. And I'm sure my families, some of them are not aware of it, you know? Yeah, something to definitely look into. 
Yeah, it's enough to survive it when you're living in it. And then something happens and you don't necessarily know it's an association to the use that you're experiencing. So it's good for them to hear this. I so appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. You have a very, very hopeful, intelligent, relatable way of presenting. I really appreciate you in the way that you obviously care for the people that you serve and empower them to find their way and the people around them. So thank you for your work. And thank you for being here today and sharing with us your wonderful wisdom. Thank you, Margaret. That's really kind to say. And I'm just going to say right back at you. I think that you have a very warm and wise way about you too. And I appreciate this conversation and yeah, look forward to others in the future. Me too. Me too. Thank you. I want to thank Jeffrey Golia for taking the time to be a guest on this podcast. I find his approach to teaching so creative and informative and relatable, and I appreciate him very much. I'd also like to take a moment to congratulate Jeffrey on his new position as Director of Clinical Services, Queen's Supervised Release at New York City Criminal Justice Agency. Come back next week, where I have the privilege of introducing you to Maeve O'Neill, who was raised in a household with both parents suffering from the disease of addiction. There's no coincidence that many of us end up in this field, helping people with the same illness that impacted our lives. You won't want to miss Maeve. See you next week. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.